For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we, we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We hear a lot about how Gens Y and Z are more woke more into sustainability, and of course, more worried about climate change and the environment. I mean, why wouldn't they be? These are the generations who are going to inherit the mess that's been made. In fact, they're already inheriting it. I'm sure you've been following the amazing Greta Thunberg as she's been reading the Riot Act to politicians across Europe for failing to protect her future and that of her entire generation. Greta is 16 and she's become emblematic of young people today who are demanding a better deal for Mother Earth. And no, Greta's not on the podcast this week, although that would be great. But I see this happening in fashion too, with all the new sustainable labels coming through. And that's why I called this episode Youthquake, which is actually one of my favourite words. It was coined by Diana Vreeland when she was the American Vogue editor to describe the whole 1960s new generation thing, inspired by swinging London. Fashion, yeah, but it was the whole bit. So music, art, writing, and of course, politics, the civil rights movement, and later the birth of the green movement. So that's all 60s stuff. And Vreeland anticipated it. This is what she wrote in her editor's letter. She wrote, This is a marvellous moment. Can you hear a marvellous moment? That starts at 13 and wastes no time. No longer waits to grow up, but makes its own way. And she mentioned that this group had a sense of assurance. And she wrote, Under 24 and over 90 million strong in the US alone. More dreamers, more doers. Here, now, Youthquake 1965. It was actually two years ago, though, in 2017, that the Oxford Dictionary pronounced the word of the year, youthquake, defining it as a significant cultural, political or social change arising from the actions or influence of young people. Around the same time, this week's guest, New Zealand designer Maggie Hewitt, who was 22 then, was shortlisted for the LVMH Prize and found herself written about by Women's Wear Daily in the New York Times. Her sustainable fashion brand, Maggie Marilyn, was around a year old and had had its debut collection picked up by Netta Porte. Today, she's stocked by some very serious global players and in Australia by The Iconic, which has just launched a new way to shop online. It's called Considered and you can search by your values. So, for example, sustainable materials or accredited fair production or animal friendly. Maggie and I spoke at the launch in Sydney and that's where we grabbed some time to record this. What else? Her clothes have been worn by Meghan Markle and Kendall Jenner, Rose McGowan and Olivia Firth. 
and me. It's no secret that it's a label I personally love to wear. And you're going to find out why I am a fan of Maggie Marilyn and exactly what Maggie does as a designer in terms of sustainability and how she built her strategy because this stuff does not just happen. We also talk about why she makes locally. Anyone else wants to move to New Zealand, by the way? I just worked out that Maggie is the third Kiwi innovator we've had on the show. Episode 20 was Karen Walker and episode 28 was Gossia from Koto. So if you want to listen back, I recommend those two. You know what? It just makes me think I would love to interview Jacinda Arden. So if you're listening, most rad female PM of all time, please come on the show. I know you love wearing New Zealand fashion. I <laughs> love doing these shout outs. By the way, I still have not heard back from Gwyneth after shouting out to her a couple of episodes back. She is on my wall right now on a post-it note. She is my goal. Come on, Gwyneth, you know you want to. But before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that we have got a new newsletter. You can sign up on clairepress.com and we will send out sustainability news and stuff about the podcast every week to your inbox. I also wanted to say a big thank you for listening. It's my all-time favourite thing to do, recording this podcast for you. And every Saturday morning I sit here and do these intros and I love it. I really do. I also love so much the conversations that it starts. I love hearing your ideas and what you love and what you're interested in. So drop me a line on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs Press via the website. Email is hello at clairepress.com and let me know what you're up to. All right, let's hang out with Maggie. Maggie, we're recording this in Bondi. You've come to Sydney because your sales agent is here. Yes. What do you love about being by the ocean? I love the ocean. I grew up in a small rural town, top of the North Island in New Zealand, so I'm very connected to the sea, for sure. But when I think of Maggie, Maggie Hewitt, but Maggie Marilyn, your brand, yeah. I don't think of small town New Zealand. I don't think of the beach. I think of global domination. Thank you. <laughs> it's true. It's been a pretty exciting journey, that's for sure. All right, so you're 24. You've had your brand for two and a half years. Yeah. You're already stocked by Net-A-Porter. You've been in American Vogue, Women's Wear Daily. The list goes on. Yeah, so we've also, we're in Moto Operandi, Selfridges, Harvey Nicks, Shopbop, Saks Fifth Ave, Neiman Marcus, like the big guys. It is amazing and I, I feel really excited with where we're at, but at the same time, I'm like, Yes, that's great, but we have a lot of work to do on our sustainability journey, and like that's all that really matters to me, to be honest. Wow, like that's our focus. All right, we're going to get into that, but just tell us because I'm sure that listeners, especially those who want to start their own brands or who are perhaps student designers, are thinking. But how do you do that in a couple of years? First season, we were picked up by Netaporte, which I think kind of catapulted us to the world stage, which was pretty crazy. I really didn't expect that. And how did that happen? You were at Sydney Fashion Week, right? So I got introduced through a family friend to Lisa Aiken, fashion director. So pretty lucky to have had that contact. And she loved the collection. And it was kind of a bit of a whirlwind after that. I mean, two weeks later, I received an order. But were you here showing in Sydney? Yeah, yeah. Not at Fashion Week. I came here and tried to act very important. I like got a hotel room, pretended I had like appointments the whole day. And really, I was just there for her. Did you just have her? She cancelled three times. My mum was like, Maggie, we should just leave. Like come on, let's go home. We had to change our flights, everything. I was like, no, I'm staying. I know she'll love it. Seriously, you're with your mum as well? Yeah. (laughs) No sales agent here. Yeah, no. What do you believe that she saw or what did she tell you she saw in your collection? 
I think she loved the whole thing. You know, the clothes were strong, but also we had an important message to tell. And I think to her, like, you have to have both, right? We had a great story that I was telling her about, you know, how we cared about the environment and we were made in New Zealand. But then the product stood on its own as well. So, yeah. I've got to say from my experience that even though we in sustainability circles love the story and I love the story personally, I don't think that's why buyers buy brands. I think that they're looking almost purely for marketability in an online context. It's what the shape looks like online. It's even different to how it is if you're selling wholesale through a department store. But the clothes have to be phenomenal and the competition is huge. So you have to do something very special to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's always hard to look at yourself reflectively, you know, and think, why me out of, I think we were the first, first season designer for them to ever pick up, which is so crazy I don't know how that happened to me but I guess we had a unique perspective I'm going to put my two penneth in here and say quite genuinely you make some of my favorite clothes ever listeners who or anyone who looks at me on Instagram you'll know that I love McGraw which I wear all the time yeah they're beautiful I also love you I wore your emerald green striped silk I'm going to call it pajama suit (laughs) to the green carpet awards yeah you looked exceptional well thanks mate but what I would say is I am not 20 and not perfect bodied model woman and those clothes fit so beautifully thank you and they didn't crush I sat in that silk and never got creases it's all in the weight yeah it's beautiful all right so I would say the message is not enough that you need both but can you strategize that stuff as a young designer I mean how I mean I'm just gonna be real like I didn't strategize that I graduated university knowing that I wasn't going to have a fashion brand that didn't encompass social and environmental responsibility. But I loved clothes. Like, I love clothes. I still love clothes. I love fashion. And the both had to coexist. So that was the strategy, really. Were you aware that there was, and I would say continues to be something of a gap between sustainability and aesthetics? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a huge reason why I wanted to start my brand you know, as cliche as it sounds, I felt like I couldn't find a brand that I wanted to buy into that was actually at an accessible price point. I mean, you have beautiful brands like Stella, Mother of Pearl, Gabriella Hurst. Those weren't price points that even were remotely attainable to me. So yeah, I think I did start it out of like, okay, I'm just going to make clothes for myself and clothes that I know where they come from, wild. Well, how would you describe the aesthetic? I think there's like a real strong femininity to it. It's not whimsical, but there's also like an optimism to the color palette that, yeah, we really want to empower. Yeah, pink (laughs) is everything, but we want to empower our customer through our designs to really allow her to feel like she can go out there and change the world because we want to change the world. All right, let's talk about your process. Where do you do it and how? We are manufactured in New Zealand and that is something that I had such a strong conviction in from the very beginning. And then, yeah, we really look at our whole supply chain from the very beginning. Where do we source our zips from to make sure that no one's negatively affected by our work? Recycled metal zippers, recycled polyester, organic wools, organic cottons, piece silk. We look at absolutely every component of what we make. So where are you actually having your pieces sewn? So is it in Auckland? And who are the women who are making them? Yeah, in Auckland. So we work with about 10 factories that are all within like a 20-minute radius of our studio. So that's pretty special. I mean, I try to explain that to people, but they really feel like our family. You know, I know 
the names of their wives and their husbands and their kids and we talk about those sorts of things and they're so ingrained in Maggie Marilyn and I think I feel such a love for them that I could never imagine not manufacturing in New Zealand and then like they're just so ingrained in like the seams of our clothes. We did a presentation at the Gramercy Park Hotel and it was no one had really questioned us on our sustainability credentials before which is like crazy in this industry right here's this young designer like saying that we make you know with the social environmental consciousness but no one had ever really dived deeper into that which is crazy people were all too happy to write about it but didn't ask any questions oh god like, if you put okay. it on a press release they go all right fine she's the great sustainable totally, future which is like wild so we were like okay hey, we're gonna jump ahead of this and we're going to tell people what we do in detail so we did a presentation I narrated the whole show as the models were walking down I didn't have a microphone I really felt like I wanted to project my own voice and be like very vulnerable in front of the audience how many people were there we did three sessions and there was about 40 people in each session so it was pretty scary like I'm not a public speaker at all but it's something that I have such a conviction for that I was excited to tell our story and what we do no music, just my voice as the models were coming down. And I really went into exceptional detail into every piece. And Like what? Give me an where example. Where it was manufactured. So like how Get'em Girl dress, that it's manufactured by Kate and Henderson and Auckland. And that the silk comes from Mr. Shen in China. And I've visited the mill in Shanghai. And, you know, it's peace silk. And I explained, you know, how that all is interwoven until the whole garment and yeah it was a pretty amazing experience and I think it really um, opened us up to having more of like an authoritative voice in our industry in sustainability I think. I wasn't there but I read about that and I remember thinking what a phenomenal idea and how clever and it's not something that many people do I mean if you look back to the history of how we used to show fashion on the runway a long time ago like in the 40s and 50s you used to have models come down and then a compare would say look 49 and the girl would hold up a sign that said 49 absolutely I mean it wasn't really a new idea I mean it was just going back to basics but it was a new idea because no one said look 49 (laughs) this has been sewn by Cheryl who used peace silk did they I mean it's quite it's quite interesting to actually turn on its head the traditional format of how you show collections yeah and I think it was quite an emotional experience I mean I felt like there were moments where my voice was kind of choking up because of how passionate I felt about this and not because of how terrified you were talking to the fashion just how much I loved you know our manufacturers and our suppliers and what we were doing and how much I wanted people to know about it and our retailers were there the press were there and I think um it was just an important moment for me to be like wake up and listen um so yeah who was present and just give me some ideas of the publications and the retailers so we had Neda Porte there Saks Motor Operandi, you know, all of our department stores. And then we had Vogue there, Women's Wear Daily, Who, What, Wear, Harper's Bazaar. So all of the people that should be there to hear that story. And what kinds of reactions did you get? I mentioned that I read quite a few articles that came out of that and I was like cheering you from afar. But were people delighted? Some people found it a little bit confronting, I think, because I was literally this far away from most. It was a really thin catwalk so I was really like in people that were sitting close to me I was like right in their face so I think it was confronting for people but that's what I wanted it to be but we had like a great response to it obviously 
But um, people were shocked. I don't think they were expecting us to do that. I like how you just thought, this is how I'm going to do it. And you said to me before that you didn't have a grand strategy around how you were going to make success. But this is obviously one of the keys to it, being yeah. honest and being fresh. Definitely. But I mean, I have an amazing team that surrounds me. George McPherson, who I think you might know, you may know. Um, yeah, who's your PR our, in New York, right? Our comms consultant launched the brand with me and he has just been incredible. So he helps a lot with that sort of stuff. Can't do it on your own? No, you can't. So no how many can. people do it with you? So in your headquarters in Auckland, yeah. what's that look like? Who's there? So there's 12 of us, 13 of us, including myself, and across production, sampling, logistics, e-com, wholesale, it's quite big. When you begin a label, it's often just you and you. <laughs> yeah, and it was like that for the first six months to a year, to be honest. Like, getting the first order from Net-A-Porter was frightening. I, in my mind, was creating a collection where I would make maybe five to ten of each piece and I'd try to pick up a retailer in New Zealand. That was my strategy. And then getting an order from Net-A-Porter and I had no idea how to make a hundred of something. I knew how to make you know, one garment and sample it. And so I think going back to my loyalty to our manufacturers, like they took me under their wing and they were so supportive. I had no idea about production or grading or how to order enough fabric for that. Like, honestly, I just knew nothing. They don't teach you that at university. So yeah, I feel indebted to them. Like, I really love them for that. What did they teach you at university? And I'm thinking specifically about a conversation we had when we first met Maggie about sustainability. Yeah, it's a funny story, really. I had my heart set on going to Auckland University to study fashion. But then a few days before applications were closing, I was reading a magazine in New Zealand and I saw a advertisement for this university called Wycliffe. And I'd never heard of it before. It's like a pretty small university in Auckland and I thought oh maybe I should apply to that just in case I don't get into the other university but I was pretty set on Auckland University and I didn't end up getting into Auckland University like I freaked out but I had applied to Whitecliffe and I decided okay you know I'm gonna make the best out of the situation I went there and I think it completely changed my life they've renamed the university to Whitecliffe College for Sustainability which is Incredible. And Incredible. I, when you told me that, I wasn't aware of it. And I just think, let's take a moment there to consider how fabulous it is that in this global world that is dominated by conversations around big fashion schools, for example, in London and in Paris yeah. and in New York, you've got a fashion school. Is it a fashion school or is it a whole... It's a fine arts school that fine arts school. fashion, yeah. But in New Zealand, that is putting the word sustainability into its name. Yeah. I honestly had the most amazing lecturers and I think I could have been a very different designer if I didn't go there so I'm a huge believer and everything happens for a reason. Let's talk about how you're actually practically embedding that into your label and in particular what does your sustainability strategy look like and before you answer just want to say you can't ask that to a lot of brands even in 2019 if I say to a lot of brands what's your sustainability strategy look like I mean, I'm not going to be interviewing them, am I, if they're not interested? Yeah. But if I were to say to a lot of mainstream brands or startup or emerging designers, they would say, what? I haven't got one. Yeah, I mean, we just finally finished it. It took us six months to write. And really, it was born out of the fact that we needed a roadmap because 
in all honesty, we were drowning. Like there was so much to do in the business and like any just emerging startup, we were trying to like face the problems that were coming at us. Or get the clothes made, get them sent before lose order. Get them sold, like literally. And so there was all these things we wanted to do, but we kept pushing it to the side. And I got to the point where I was like, no, we need a roadmap forward. And so we worked with an amazing consultant in Auckland. And finally we have this roadmap, which is So you brought in an external consultant who was an expert. Yeah. And we definitely, he wasn't an expert in fashion, but just within sustainability in the wider meaning of the word. And basically I just like word vomited all over him. Like, this is my dream for the brand. This is what I want to do. And he helped me and my team build it into a case of strategy. And so it's broken out into people, planet and prosperity. And some of those goals are that... 30% of the collection will be made from recycled fibers by the end of 2020 and 20% will be from repurposed clothing. So hopefully by the end of 2020, 50% of our collection won't be virgin sourced, which is something I feel really excited about to things like our aim to be carbon zero. So yeah, it's pretty detailed, but we really wanted to make the strategy really digestible to our customer. So we put it online And that was really to hold ourselves accountable, that they can hold us accountable. Mm. Like, we're going to do this Mm. and it's not going to be easy, but we're going to put it out into the world. I'm actually going to read a little line out from your website because I think it's really interesting. And I quote, as a young designer, I believe I have the daunting but incredibly exciting responsibility of being part of a new wave of designers who feel it is their passion and obligation to turn this industry around. And then you said, I believe this starts with education and we need to educate our customer to ask more questions. We need our customer to constantly challenge businesses and labels they care about. Talk to me a bit about that. I mean, first of all, obligation interesting word yeah and secondly bringing the customer in and saying they have to play a part in this too yeah definitely I think education is everything like you don't know what you don't know right asking more questions is where it all starts um we presume that the retailer the brand the manufacturers the suppliers like ask these questions on our behalf but like unfortunately most of the time they don't and this is where it all starts. Like we live in a world where we don't question where things come from anymore. We don't question like where our food comes from, the clothes that we wear on our skin. So yeah, this is something that we really work with and we feel like we have an obligation to educate our customer because how can we expect our customer to make a more informed decision if we don't inform them, right? How hard is it? I mean, what are the biggest challenges? I think the challenges are vast, that's (laughs) for sure. But one of the biggest challenges, to be honest, that we're facing at the moment is as a primarily wholesale distributed brand is like this missing link between us and the end consumer and the retailer being in between, right? So we can do all we like to educate our customer through social media or through our website. But ultimately, if the customer comes into one of our department stores for the first time and buys us, they don't know what we're about. They're not being educated on that. And I think this is where it all comes down to obligation and accountability. Like retailers need to know their position in the wider context of rebuilding our industry. I've been thinking quite a lot around the role of retail just recently this week. You're actually in Sydney because we're going to do an event with The Iconic, which is an online activity 
accessible. I'm using that word in a slightly elastic way because the price points are quite varied. Yeah. But big online retail store in Australia. And it's actually very exciting because they've got this really, really kind of bold new strategy to talk about different sustainability attributes online for various brands. And this isn't something that retailers do or not yet. No, not yet at all. And I think allowing customers to shop by their values is so important because we all have different values at the end of the day, right? Like what's important to me might be different to you. And I think the fact that you can shop, you know, if you want to support Made in Australia or you're about supporting organic fibers or you're about circularity, you know, you can buy into what's important to you. And I think this is our first season with the Iconic. And when they first pitched the story to me, I felt really excited about it because we didn't have a partner yet where that was a conversation. Mm. And I was like, yay, this is exciting. And yeah, for like you say, a retailer that's reasonably accessible, you know, they they really like have such a wide reach and that's what excited me. But I think it's also about a different kind of customer and also about scaling up because if you really want to seek out sustainable product, you can do that. I mean, I, I yeah. know you listened to the episode we did with Amy from Mother of Pearl yeah. and she really pushes that. She's like, she knows yeah. her customers are into it. Yeah. And so she's pioneered some of this searchability for sustainability online. Yeah. But retailers haven't yet done it. Farfetch is pushing forward a new strategy on this, which yeah. is also cool. Yeah, awesome. But I do think it's quite hard for people who don't know all about sustainability to find good sustainable brands and know what they are looking for. Yeah, definitely. And I think it needs to be easy for the customer. You know, we do live in a time where everything is so accessible and easy to us. And I think it's hard to go back and say to the customer that you're going to have to do all the work, you know. So I think how can you say to inform a customer and educate them on wanting to buy better, but then you go into a retailer and maybe there's 20 brands that are doing good and 2,000 that have no sustainability mission, I want to ask about your why. Yeah. So Simon Sinek, who we mentioned on this podcast before in the episode on the Ethical Fashion Initiative, and I have to say that when Robin, who was interviewed for that, told me about Simon Sinek, I was like, who's that? But then I looked it up and I watched his very motivational TED Talks. But he's the guy who's all about find your why. Yeah. And he says, a good leader must provide vision. Why are we doing this? Why are we in business in the first place? What is the point? What are your values? And what do you want to leave behind when you're gone? Yeah, I think the why is everything. I mean... Business is hard, like no matter if you have a sustainability mission or not. Like, Yeah, that it, just makes it harder. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it tests like every fibre of your being. Like it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And the why is what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's so important. So I think, you know, building a brand that is transparent and that's accountable and hopefully circular one day empowering to everyone involved empowers everyone involved in the supply chain and ultimately is regenerative so our mission is to do better than those before us do you think we're seeing a generational shift many of the young designers I meet are really espousing these values and I think that older generations just weren't so switched on what do you think I think there's definitely a generational shift but I think as humans like we've always been activists in our nature I think baby boomers had the task of fighting the civil rights movement and women's rights and I think they were activists back then because those were the big problems and issues of their time and I think the issues of our time is climate change and fighting the war on climate change so I think as 
Gen X's and millennials and Gen Z. It all gets a bit complicated. Mm-hmm. We really understand our position in needing to make a difference. I've been reading a book recently called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. It's all to do with climate change and he talks about the fact that like we have one generation to rewrite the wrongs of previous generations like what happens 50 years 100 years from now will be entirely what we do in this moment and I think as millennials I really understand like the role that I play in that and feel a pretty huge burden that we have a lot of other issues going on in the world right now but maybe all of it kind of fades away if we're not going to have a planet to live on. Absolutely did you watch I'm sure you did but If anyone hasn't yet watched the Greta Thunberg TED Talk in which she basically says, every one of you sitting here in this audience isn't going to be around when I'm your age and you're leaving me with a terrible legacy and you've got to get up and do nothing but fight this. Yeah. I mean, it's just fundamental how we're going to survive in the future stuff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sorry to be a downer, but it is like we really do need to change systems. I think fear can either like cripple you or it can like empower you to act, right? And we have to act. Like get up and do something, you know. I think some people are like, I'm only one person, what can I do? But we can all make a difference, even if it's just like igniting more conversation. I totally agree with that, as you know. <laughs> we need to have some fights with people who don't agree with it. Yeah, we should get someone on this podcast who's like total climate change denier, shouldn't I? Yes, I you even thought should. Of that. If anyone can suggest anyone that they think I ought to lay into and have a robust debate with about fashion and the environment, please message Definitely. me. Maggie, when we were preparing for this, I sent you a link to a Forbes story and the title was Greener Than You boomers, Gen X and millennials score themselves on the environment. And one of the things I found interesting in this was that millennials were saying that they believed they were more concerned than older generations in protecting the environment. But then the boomers were saying that they were also more concerned (laughs) about protecting the environment. And then this is a clincher. Studies show that merely believing in the importance of protecting the environment doesn't actually translate into pro-environmental activity at any age. So basically we talk a lot of talk, but we don't practice a lot of change-making actions. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it really goes back to this idea that it needs to be simpler for everyone and that we live in a time of convenience and that I do really think we need to hold brands and retailers more accountable And that the only prerequisite should be sustainability. Like that should be the only thing that matters to get into a store, you know? Mm. Um, There shouldn't be, you know, sustainable brands and unsustainable brands, but just a prerequisite of like basically like baseline what you have to do to like be a brand or to operate in this industry. It's, yeah, it's pretty crazy to me that we don't have that yet. When Maggie rules the world, I always say that if I were queen. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm like... Come on, how like in the food industry, you know, certifying organic food, how do we not have that in clothing yet? I mean, by all means, I know how long and disjointed the supply chain is, but it's not that hard to break it down and to have some sort of like overall certification. It's probably coming. I just actually read and I'll share a link, an interesting news story out of Denmark, which was heralding the advent of climate labeling on food. Yeah. I mean, wow, which is basically saying this is the carbon footprint of what you're buying, not just what the ingredients are. Yeah, amazing. And I think that goes back to shopping by your values that eventually one day you'll go into a store and it'll be like, these are the clothes that are carbon zero. These are the clothes that are made out of organic fibers. These are the clothes that are made locally. And 
that seems like a utopia to me. <laughs> Let's talk about the power of Made in New Zealand, yeah. um, not just because of knowing your makers, but also because of carbon. Yeah, definitely. And I think I understand our geographical isolation has pros and cons and making locally is important to that, but also having to ship that all around the world from New Zealand is a consideration. I mean, going down this journey of our sustainability strategy and having to actually uncover and map out what our carbon footprint even is, is so eye-opening. It makes you think about everything in such a deeper level from who's the person that's transporting the raw material of your cotton to your mill. You know, all those questions that maybe you wouldn't have thought of before. I asked you about challenges before and I think this is one of the kind of unspoken because it is relatively new. Huge challenges. How on earth do you do it? I mean, it's hard enough to understand who makes your clothes or who the people are in your tier two supply chain. Yeah. When we start thinking about what you just raised, I mean, how do you not give up? Yeah, I mean, it's huge, but also so exciting. I mean, I just think conversations around like what's the it color of the season like that just doesn't excite me as much as like okay how do we figure out our carbon footprint like I'm such a nerd about that sort of thing I absolutely love it and at the moment we're just trying to figure out what our carbon footprint is in New Zealand and then internationally what our carbon footprint is but any business who's already carbon zero I like salute you it's pretty (laughs) incredible let's talk a little bit about plastic pollution because it was through you that I found out about the possibility of a bioplastic alternative derived from cassava yeah you shared it on Instagram yeah it took us like 12 months to honestly find the supplier I have the most incredible logistics manager who feels the same as me on war on plastics and once we found the supplier, I mean, they weren't even geared up to make the right sort of like fabric fashion packaging that we needed. It was geared up towards more like FMCG goods. So it took a, a long time to work through. But once we got it, it was pretty incredible. And I just felt like I needed to share it with the world. Like I had an obligation to anyone else that was struggling with this, you know. When I first started my brand, you know, obviously went to such lengths to make the best product that I could. And then we just slapped it all in plastic at the end because we were bound to what our retailers said we needed to do in terms of how we shipped it to them. So that just seemed absurd to me. So we needed to find a resolution. How has it performed and how have they reacted? Because this stuff basically dissolves in water and you showed that on Instagram. Yeah, it completely dissolves, leaving no microparticles, no chemicals. And I think the amazing thing about sharing it on Instagram was the response that we got from other brands, Mm. like DMing us straight away, which... Because everyone's hungry for a solution. Nobody is enjoying this, like, feeling that they're using plastic they don't want to use. We all feel stressed by it. I think that's what excited me, like... As humans, like most of us want to do good. You know what I mean? I think sometimes we just don't know where to start. And this is a really tangible place to start and doesn't cost a lot and doesn't require a lot of time and energy in terms of resources. But how? I just wanted to understand how it performs because did you get pushback from retailers saying, well, is it not stable enough? Is it going to dissolve in the rain? I don't know. Yeah, we did. And basically the hard line was, cool, but if anything happens to your garments, like you're going to pay for it. So... That was pretty nerve-wracking. We had to take the punt and be like, okay, we're going to stand behind it. And we did. So far, so good? Well, I mean, we've had like a few little glitches. You know, um, the amazing thing about it, but kind of annoying thing, is that it literally starts to disintegrate after like six months. So if people keep the clothing packaged for a while, it will start to disintegrate. I mean, it doesn't melt on the clothes. It just like literally starts to evaporate. 
so we can't buy it in bulk like we have to order it and just make enough for that shipping period and then hopefully the people that we ship it to get rid of it straight away some people would say this is too hard basket for me but you just think hang on I'll figure it out yeah I mean I just I think I'm an optimist I just look at any challenge and I'm like there's always a way through it Social media is so important and it's been one of the ways you've been able to build your brand, although not the only one. I mean, I wouldn't call Maggie Marilyn an Instagram brand, but I think the medium lends itself to your great photography, to your storytelling. Yeah, definitely. How do you harness it to do that job for you? It's been interesting because to be honest, I'm like not naturally a very like giving person on social media. But I think one of the most exciting things that's come out of Instagram is the direct relationship building with our customers that... We see women from all different continents of the world wearing Maggie Marilyn and I can be a part of that experience with them. I see how they incorporate it into their lives, how they wear it. It's like the perfect focus group. And I think they give me hope because they challenge us on what we say we're going to do and on things that we already do. And that I know our customer is going to change the world. Like I know that, you know, there's that activist girl out there that really cares what she's buying into. You love the activist girl, but I'm sure your sales agent loves Kendall Jenner. And you've had the Markle sparkle. I think you can't underestimate the power of someone like Meghan Markle wearing your clothes. I think she's in a whole nother league of her own. And um, In fairness, she was actually and has continued to be something of a quiet ethical fashion activist, even though she doesn't talk about it, the clothes yeah. talk. Yeah, definitely. The power that someone in her position can do for the conversation surrounding sustainability. What did she wear of yours? She wore our Leap of Faith blazer dress, which is quite beautiful. The name of the dress, like, really speaks to that. And where? And she wore it in New Zealand on her New Zealand trip with Harry. Yeah, which was pretty special. It was definitely an amazing moment for the brand. But we still have, like, a long road ahead of us, and it's the culmination of good things that, that make success. I interviewed James Bartle from Alan Denim before the Duchess of Sussex patronised his brand. So we never got to talk about this, but I happen to know that subsequently, the Markle Sparkle, which is what we call it, had such a spike in sales as a direct result that he was able to employ 36 more women in Cambodia. Yeah, I know. I remember you telling me that. That's incredible. It goes back to the amazing influence that someone who harnesses good in their position can have. But yeah, I mean, obviously it grew our brand awareness significantly and definitely helped with sales. But um, I don't know, still when I see someone that I don't know walking down the street in Maggie Marilyn, it like literally makes my heart flutter. Like there's nothing that gives me more happiness. I was driving to work one day and I was like having quite a bad week, to be honest. And someone walked past my window and they were wearing this knit and the names are very important to us. And it was called Stronger Than You Know. It was like this little angel like, ah. that walked past me and I was like, wow, that's crazy. It is, it's amazing. Um, My final question to you then, Maggie, what kind of fashion future would you like to see and are you determined to create? I think, you know, continuing to build a brand that can lead by example and also showing that sustainability and commercial viability can intercept, that if fashion is you know used as a vehicle for good I think it really just might like have the power to change the world so yeah that's beautiful (laughs) you're beautiful Maggie Marilyn Hewitt (laughs) thank you thank you so much for having me my pleasure
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you